Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am Carl Stevens, the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And uh, we are back from Thanksgiving wanderings. Um, so we apologize for not having posted a podcast for the last two weeks, uh, but travel considerations and holiday considerations got in our way. Uh, but today we're, we're ready to jump back in at Exodus chapter 12. Um, Daniel, anything you want to say before we just get right to it? Uh, no, you know, I'm glad we're on the radio so everyone can't see the post Thanksgiving plumper version of me too. So, you know, <laughs> I actually signed up for one of those like soul cycle things, which I think, <laughs> I think it's ridiculous, but <laughs> I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so you're leaving, leaving the Episcopal church is what you're saying. <laughs> a new, a new cult to belong to. Uh, cult. I hope it's not cult like, but if it is, I'll just say it's, uh, anthropological purposes as well as losing weight that I'm there for okay so if the bishop is listening that's that's the answer here yeah yes and speaking of cult and cultic things oh look at that transition uh exodus Exodus 12 is full of what we would call priestly materials in the uh, religious studies biz um do we want to before we jump in do we want to give a little preview as to the construction of uh the hebrew scriptures and what these different sources are and where they come from yeah, so let's talk a little bit about uh, who the priests were. So if you can imagine religion in the Middle East 2,500 years ago, something like that, 3,000 years ago, what you're going to find is you're going to find people who are offering sacrifices to all sorts of gods. You'll certainly find this throughout the uh, Holy Land, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, all you have to do is look at all of the descriptions we have of the time of King David, right? We always have people screaming about stop offering sacrifices to all of these foreign gods. So we know that people don't create rules for uh, uh, things that aren't happening. So we know that people are all over sacrificing to all sorts of gods. And each of the towns would have one of these or many of these sacrificial locations, these cultic sites, these, uh, uh, right. These fancy words for uh, basically the place that you would go and bring your uh, meat for the barbecue. Right. Uh, And I say barbecue jokingly, but it's also true that uh, I think when many of us think and imagine of uh, animal sacrifice uh, to the gods, we're imagining, you know, bringing it to the priest. The way you become a priest is uh, hereditary. Your father has to have been a priest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you bring your animal to the priest to sacrifice it up to the god. And I think most of us imagine that it's sort of burnt up. Uh, but actually, very few of the sacrifices are burnt up. Really, it's much more like a barbecue. The uh, priests would kill the animal in a very specific way, in a sacrificial way, and the smell would be offered up to the god. Uh, the priest would take their cut, you know, their 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where they got their dinner from. Right. And you would get the rest of your animal back cooked and uh, ready for you and your family to feast upon. That's – okay. So that is – uh, something I had read a while ago and really struck me profoundly. And then in Bible study the other night, I was trying to remember it. But it's this idea of a shared meal with the deity. A shared meal with the deity, exactly. And actually, we're going to get a version of that in this week's chapter that we're looking at, right? We're right. looking at chapter 12, where we have the Paschal sacrifice and who can eat the Paschal sacrifice. And here, we're really talking about the sorts of community that is created around food and around right. a shared food experience. And you'll see uh, when we get there, some of the boundaries that they're talking about 
are really the boundaries of asking the question of who is a part of this community and who is external to the community. Right. Okay. So who gets to have a meal with God and who doesn't in some ways? Yeah. 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 Uh, or who gets to have a meal with this God? Okay. Right. Because there are all sorts of gods lining up for meals. Yes, in exactly. The and they're always hungry. And they're always, <laughs> and they're always hungry. Hungry, hungry gods. Uh, right. The, the other thing to remember, too, is that humans had a really different relationship to meat before the Industrial Age. Right. Right. First of all, it was more than likely uh, an animal that you had raised yourself. Mm-hmm. But it also meant that you weren't having meat, certainly not every day. Uh, if you were lucky and if you were wealthy, you're talking about having meat, you know, once a week or something like that. Right. Uh, and so these are special occasions. And so for those special occasions, you would bring your animal to the priest for the slaughter. Right. And you would eat every part of it because it takes a lot of economic resources to raise an animal. Exactly. And nothing can be nothing can be left behind. Really. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um <clears throat> so there a little bit about the uh about the priests but I think we've got another question which is why is this material here? So uh maybe we should jump in and start reading some of this and then ask that question. Verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, they shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from the sheep, or from the goats. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Because sure. I think we get a real taste of what uh, the priestly voice sounds like. Uh, mm-hmm. right? one, one of the beauties, I think, of doing this close read like we've been doing into the book of Exodus is you get so familiar with the way that the language sounds. And so when you read this closely, you can, you can feel we're in a different genre, right? We're right. not in the middle of storytelling right now. We're not in this great narrative about what's happening. Really, what we're getting is instructions about how to offer a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, so at some level, I think one of the questions is, why the heck would Moses care about any of this right now? Right? This, this highly priestly material, this very specific ritual. Right. It's the kind of thing you'd expect Aaron to care about. Ah, uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, right in this actually begins, uh, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, but we get this whole different genre, the priestly genre. And once you recognize it, once you see it, uh, you'll find it everywhere in the first five books. Uh, right? Actually, the, the Genesis 1 story, the story of creation is priestly. Uh-huh. Uh, and you can feel it because it's concerned with days and with order and with how things are done. Uh, and that's really what the priestly source is. In fact, the book of Leviticus itself, uh, Vayikra, we call it in Hebrew, uh, it, it literally it, it, it means the guidebook for the Levites, for the priests. Huh. Uh, so what we're really seeing here is... 
uh, an amalgamation. We're seeing a collection of all of these different voices that are put together to create one narrative that is the Torah, the five books of Moses. Uh, we've got from sort of the north of Israel, uh, we've got the stories of the Exodus. And from the south of Israel, we've got the stories of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the patriarchs and the matriarchs and their wanderings, what we think of as sort of the uh, classic Genesis stories. Uh, and what we get in Jerusalem, what we get in the center is we get these stories uh, of David and we get the stories of the priests, because, of course, the priests end up based at the temple in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so it's really it's interesting that it's these uh, sort of political happenings that end up bringing all of these stories together. It's uh, the Assyrians destroying the north in the 750s uh, BCE, uh, which sends the northerners south, bringing their Moses stories with them, combining with the stories of uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then it's in 586 BCE, it's the Babylonian exile when the Jews are carted off into slavery and kept there and then only allowed to return years later, uh, that all of this is put together and comes together. And the people who put it together, of course, are the priests, the scribes, the educated class. Uh, and so there's this idea, uh, there's this idea in antiquity in the Middle East that whatever's in the middle is the most important. So if you look at the five books of Moses, it makes sense that it's the priests who are the final editors and redactors who who bind this story because the priests put their book, the book of Leviticus, right in the middle. In the middle, yeah. And that goes kind of for the um, biblical writing genre that we were talking about last time when we were in Cincinnati, this idea that a lot of formerly uh, a lot of stories in the Hebrew Bible are like that. There's something in the middle and then there's uh, repeating patterns going out from it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I hope that wasn't overwhelming. That was sort of my uh, uh, Bible 401 class that I taught in university uh, uh, in about 30 seconds. Yeah, it was really helpful in particular because um, I knew that there were these different authors of um, scripture, but I didn't realize that they were geographically based in that way. So, um, does that mean that the Deuteronomist was in the north, the the Eloist was in the south, the Yahwehist was somewhere else? Uh, so this is this is the classic uh, uh, the classic description of who wrote the Bible. It's called the JEPD theory, the documentary hypothesis. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's actually it's been. Uh, modified since then. Uh, there was sort of a golden age of scholarship, biblical scholarship, where people thought that they could literally take verse by verse and figure out which source was which. But yeah, basically that's the idea that that uh, each of these letters, or the first two, J and E, stand for two different names of God that we find in the Bible. And one of the interesting things is we find this um, proper name of God, yod heh vav uh, We call that the J source because, of course, the... Uh, uh, begins with a Yud, which is sort of a Y sound. Uh, but in German, where this theory arose, uh, J is uh, the Y sound. That's how we end up with Jesus also, by the way. Um, so that's the name of God they use in the North. And it's the name of God we find throughout these Exodus stories, right? It is the personal name of God of the slaves. Mm-hmm. But then in the South, in the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stories, uh, we tend to instead get an emphasis on the god El, uh, El Shaddai, 
uh, Elohim, uh, all of these L words. Uh, uh, and uh, so that is a whole different set of ways of talking about a deity. Uh, so then finally, the one you raised, the Deuteronomists, uh, the way of thinking of the Deuteronomists, and actually uh, Deuteronomy, the rabbis call it the Mishnah Torah, the retelling of the Torah. Because if you look uh -huh. at the book of Deuteronomy, what it really is, is it's a retelling of the whole Exodus story. Right. And what happens is, uh, I mentioned earlier, that the north is destroyed by the Assyrians uh, in the, the mid-8th century, 700s BCE. Uh, and all of these refugees from the north come south with their Moses stories, with their exile stories. And over the generations, what happens is the southerners begin to tell their own version of the Exodus story. And that's what Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy is a sort of Jerusalem based retelling of the story of the Exodus, uh, but from that Southern Jerusalem perspective. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, that is all great. So we, but we know that we're dealing here mostly with the priestly author. The priestly we're dealing with the priestly source right here. Yeah. And uh, so hopefully our readers will be able to feel this again, the things to look for with the priestly source are the interest in sacrifices in a sense that you could follow along with what's happening, that if you had all the tools, you could do this also. Um, it's okay. a how to guide. Yeah. Okay. But in these first five verses that we, that we just looked at, um, there's not only a, a, well, it is a question of sacrifice, but what's striking to me is that the people of Israel are supposed to combine with their neighbors in making the sacrifice. So there, there's an element of, this is a uh, family worship, right? Each household is supposed to take this lamb, but also an extension of the idea of that family to your neighbors if they can't afford a lamb or they're not large enough. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's the creation of a sacred community. Right. Uh, and that's one of the interesting things that we're going to see here, right? Rituals are a wonderful way of creating borders. Mm -hmm. Right. Who takes part in the yep. Paschal sacrifice or who takes part in communion? And we uh, tend sometimes to think of that as exclusionary. Um, in fact, when we were doing this in Bible study, somebody said, well, it's odd to me that um, they brought it, that they kind of created this exclusionary system from the from the start. Uh, but my response was we're always exclusionary. Like you can't have a human group without establishing some form of border. You know, exactly. so if you have a, if you have a Wednesday night Bible study, you've established at least two norms for that group. One that they meet at uh, Wednesday night and two that they study the Bible. Right. And so now that's exclusionary to everyone who doesn't want to meet on Wednesday night or study the Bible, but that's how groups work. You can't do it any other way. Yeah. And I actually think as we go on, I think it's an interesting perspective on what does it mean to be a Jew? Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll see this later on because there is this tension between the idea of being a Jew as an ethnicity and being a Jew as a religious identity. Uh -huh. uh, and I actually think we get that explored in this chapter. Okay. Well, let's move on with the chapter. Do you want me to keep reading or do you want to read? I, you know, you're doing such a nice job. Okay. Verse six. You shall keep it, being the lamb, until the fourteenth day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. 
They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. Okay, let's pause here. Okay. So, for contemporary Jews, this is the Passover Seder. Mm -hmm. Uh, And hopefully many of our listeners uh, uh, have been to a Passover Seder. If you haven't, uh, it's in the spring. And, you know, send an email to uh, uh, the DSO Big Read, and uh, maybe we'll get you invited to a Passover Seder somewhere, uh, if that's something you'd like. Uh, Come to my house. We'll set as many chairs as we need. Okay, cool. But the Passover Seder is this ritual meal where we retell the Exodus. And this becomes the model of it, that we have all of these things. We have this unleavened bread. We have the Paschal lamb. Uh, it's traditional to have a, uh, a lamb shank on your Seder plate. Uh, the mm-hmm. ve- vegetarian homes like mine have um, the bloody remains of a roasted beet instead. <laughs> you monsters. <laughs> yes, exactly. You can, you can still hear the cries of the baby beets as they were pulled. Was it an unblemished beat? It's very, and, and very important. Did you pull it four days before the sacrifice? Uh, you know, you got to do these things. Yeah, um, okay. But all of these, you know, right? It, it, those sorts of questions are actually the questions of the Passover meal. Uh-huh. Uh, and this continues today. Uh, so for many of our listeners, I think they'll think, uh, what's the most famous Passover meal they know of? Well, what's the most famous Passover meal you think of, Carl? Well, uh, until we were talking before the show, I would have said The Last Supper, but you disabuse me just as you are about to disabuse our listeners. Yes, yes, that was a little bit of a trick question there. Um, <laughs> so one of the interesting things is a lot – you found these uh, Christian Passover satyrs that have emerged over the last, I don't know, couple decades. Right. Uh where people are trying to Christians are trying to sort of reclaim a sense of the last supper. Yeah. Uh, and so they hold a Seder in commemoration of it, uh, a Passover Seder, just like Jews hold a Passover Seder every year. Uh, but one of the really interesting things here is the Passover Seder doesn't really emerge until hundreds of years after the death of Jesus. Uh, that, Judaism today is so radically different from the Judaism of even the Christian biblical period uh, that it's, it's sort of a, um, it's a odd reverse appropriation uh, because actually the Passover Seder itself comes from Greek traditions. Huh? Uh, It's the Greek symposium. Whoa. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the idea that you gather in this sort of lounging meal that's there to uh, uh, spur conversation and discussion. Uh, And so this ends up emerging much later uh, than Jesus' time. But that's interesting because, of course, large parts of uh, Judea were deeply Greek-influenced, including up by Galilee, you know, where the Decapolis, uh, the ten Greek cities were there. So... It's possible that 
although Jesus and his followers were not doing a Passover Seder, they were being influenced by the exact same cultural norm that later would lead to the Seder, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense, right? There's this huge tension. It's maybe the most important conversation uh, that was happening at the time between uh, Greek or uh, sort of Greek thought, Western thought, uh, and Jewish thought and identity. And uh, during the time of Jesus, there's this push and pull. We're just after the time of the Maccabees and the Hanukkah story, which is really a Jewish civil war about this question of Greek culture and Greek right. assimilation. Um, right. And so at the same time, the Jews are self-consciously rejecting Greek culture. That rejection, even though they're not seeing it, is also an embrace of Greek culture and Greek thought. Uh, and uh, uh, sort of a merger of the two. Yeah. Isn't that always the way? That that in order to reject something, we have to take it so seriously that it actually influences us. Exactly. It's part of who we are. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, it, Jesus almost certainly in the Last Supper was uh, uh, taking part in a classically Jewish ritual, which is that a meal begins with wine and bread and blessings over both of them. Uh-huh. Uh, but the idea that this was a Passover Seder, or at least a Passover Seder in a way any of us would recognize, uh, is a total misnomer because uh, there was no such thing as a Passover Seder that any of us would recognize at that point. Right. Okay, fair enough. And uh, uh, I mean, I have to say, I don't agree with the Passover Seder thing uh, or the the Christian practice of it on Monday Thursday, because it seems like just such an out and out appropriation. Um, and and my, I think this is clever. Other people might not, but I always think like if I drove by a synagogue and at at Christmas time and saw a nativity set up in the front yard, I might have some objection to that, or I might wonder what they were doing. And I don't see why it doesn't work in the opposite direction <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, this is funny. It's one of these that doesn't get me terribly worked up. A lot of my, uh, yep. uh, rabbinic colleagues get worked up over it, but, um, no, I would say much more uh, again for those listeners. If you're interested in attending a Seder, uh, I would love to find you a Seder to attend. And I know lots and lots of families, uh, because it's a family event. Almost every family hosts uh -huh. one uh, that would love right. to have some guests. It's In fact, it's a classic custom at Seders that we have guests. Right. Well, there we go. That's great. Okay. So we here in Exodus are, at this point in Chapter 12, are essentially hearing about a Passover Seder. We're hearing about um, the, the prototype of the Passover Seder, exactly. The prototype of it. Yeah, and it comes – but it's not – this passage is not being written a couple hundred years after the death of Christ. This is being written earlier, and what it's really describing is temple worship, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Passover was one of the major festival holidays that, that centered on the temple. And am I right in assuming that the, the reason we it became a Seder at all is that the temple was destroyed and the way to maintain or to keep this tradition that is laid down in Exodus going was to move it into the household? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's sort of uh, modern Judaism writ large is, uh, is that what you just said. Right. Okay. Well, there we go. Um, so where were we? What chapter are, or what verse are we in? 
I think we're on verse 11. Does that sound right? Sure. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, this is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. That actually kind of sounds difficult to eat it that way. It sure um, does. You shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to the Lord. And actually, that, that continues to be an idea. There's a time that your Seder has to be over by. Huh. Okay. Uh, all of these turn into ritual elements. Oh. Uh, for that night, I will go through the land of Egypt and will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And I will mete out punishment to all the gods of Egypt. I, the Lord. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So a, a question here for you. Why do they yeah. have to do this? Right? Can't God tell the difference on God's own? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I, I I think we have a, a midrash from Rashi, which might help us with that, right? Because he kind of asks this question um, and and starts to answer it in terms of covenant in really interesting ways. Yeah. Uh, um, so you and I have talked about covenant before, and I think we actually had a minor disagreement in which you were saying you thought of it mostly as contract, like contract law. Um, and I wanted to, to make a different case for it as, you know, say like the covenant of marriage or something else, which mm. is not just about contract. Sort of contract um, plus sacrament. Is that the idea? I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. That, in fact, that's a great way to put it. Um, but it, up until this point, the covenant that God has made with humanity has all about, been about God doing things for Abraham or God doing things for Jacob. Um, but here Rashi seems to be saying that that covenant is changing. There's a mutuality to it now that wasn't there before. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, it's one of the things that changes with the Exodus story that the, the covenant of Abraham, uh, other than maybe a little circumcision, uh, is entirely one-sided. God will give Abraham land, progeny, and wealth. And right. what does Abraham have to do in return? Not much. Uh, yeah. Uh, right. Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that's the reward. That's the reward. Ah, right. That's, that's right. God's right. promise to Abraham. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. and all Abraham has to do in return is have this sign of the covenant, this marker upon the bodies of all of his male descendants. Uh, but what we get here is something different. Uh, what we get in the Exodus narrative is much more of a two way covenant. Uh, uh, as you like to call it, or, or a contract like we think of a contract where both parties who are entering into it have obligations. And so Rashi's understanding of why do we paint or why did the Jews paint the, the doorpost with blood is that this is a way of teaching uh, those who had been slaves to have a mutual relationship. With anyone or just, I mean, start that relationship with God and then it becomes with anyone. Yeah. Is that the yeah, idea? exactly. Exactly. That's okay. the idea. Um, it's the same concept as the reason why the slaves all died in the wilderness, that there had hmm. to be a learning that, that you had to learn how to live life as a free person, uh, with relationships that can be, uh, back and forth, give and take, as opposed to one way relationships. 
Uh-huh. Okay, so God is modeling that kind of relationship in this moment. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Forcing the Israelites to take some responsibility for what's going to happen. Although you can you could I mean, if I were one of them, I would be tempted to shy away from that responsibility because what's going to happen is horrific. So, uh, so you you might wonder if this isn't God getting the the Israelites to collude in the death of the Egyptian firstborn. Yeah, yeah, interesting. <laughs> if I were to be thoroughly negative about it, right? Uh, that they have to learn to take responsibility for that too. Yep. It ain't pretty, um, is what I'm saying. Yeah, right. It's it's only the houses that have blood on them already that aren't going to have blood. Right. Right. Although I, I guess in a kind of large way, that too is a uh, speaks to a greater covenant among all human beings, right? Like if we are all deeply interconnected, if some of us are suffering, then everybody really is suffering. And again, this is just an unveiling of that truth that we that maybe all of all of human life is covenantal. We just choose to ignore that covenant. We just choose to, to ignore it. Cost. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. I, I like. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I think that might be a way in which to uh, to make sense of this, because really, otherwise, it's very hard to make sense of. Um, or to sympathize with with God, really, for this for the slaughter that's about to come. Yeah, that's and I mentioned it before, but it's how I always like to understand these plagues. That fundamentally, why is it that they punish everyone? Because fundamentally, when you have a society, or perhaps inevitably, when you have a society where one group is deeply benefiting at the expense of another group who is vulnerable and being taken advantage of that in the end, everyone will suffer because of this. Right. That that is inevitable. Right. So here we have a great unveiling, just just as we've seen other unveilings throughout the narrative. Okay, well, let's move on. Um, this is a long chapter, and we're, we've been going for a while. So. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so picking verse- up on verse 14. Sure. Uh, This day shall be to you one of remembrance. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time, which we still do with the Passover Seder. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. On the the very first day, you shall uh, remove leaven from your house. Uh, For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. You shall celebrate a sacred occasion on the first day and a sacred occasion on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done in them. Only what every person is to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout the ages as an institution for all time. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. So we're really getting the same timing three different ways here. Uh, right. No right. leaven shall be found in your houses for seven days. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a citizen of the country. Uh, so again, another uh, key to priests uh, and the priestly material is 
if you're feeling a lot of repetition, you're probably in Priestly material. Yeah, uh, they really want you to to get it. They really want you to pay attention. Yeah, well, you know, they understand these rituals as being direct communion with God. And so it's important that you get them right. Right. Yep. Uh, usually nothing leavened in all your settlements, usually unleavened bread. Okay. We get a break here. Thoughts on any of this? Um, I, I have a question, which is, uh, is this taking place? One of the commentaries we, we read said that this was taking place essentially as a kind of New Year's festival, uh, spring New Year's festival. Um, is that how it's understood in, in Judaism now? Yes, we really get classically in Judaism three major holidays. Uh, it's funny, these aren't the major holidays anymore. Uh, but we get the festival of the sacrificial lamb or of the uh, um, unleavened bread, right? What we now call Passover, uh, which yep. is the spring festival. It's the moment of rebirth, of planting. Uh, then we get the what we call the festival of weeks, Shavuot, uh, which is the festival of the first harvest. It's the first fruits and it's when the barley crop begins to ripen. Uh, and then finally, we get the festival of Sukkot, the festival of booths, which happens in the fall, uh, which is the festival of the last harvest, uh, the festival of the wheat harvest. Uh -huh. um, and so these are really, all of these holidays are deeply connected, uh, both with biblical ideas, but also just with the cycle of the natural world if you live in the land of Israel. Right. And... There can be several are, – are each of these festivals considered like a new year or when when is the Jewish New Year? So we actually have all sorts of different New Years. Um, okay. That's what I suspected. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We've got a new year for the trees. It usually happens in February. It's my favorite holiday uh, because you eat lots oh. of fruit. Uh, uh, you get a new year. Uh, here's a version of the new year. And of course we famously got the, uh, Rosh Hashanah, the new year where we actually changed the counting of, uh, of the year itself. Okay. Okay. And I, and there is a kind of parallel in Christianity in that, uh, there's a secular new year, which of course is January 1st, but for liturgical Christians, uh, the new year starts with Advent, which takes place about a month before. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So uh, it would be interesting to see how many cultures in the world have more than one new year going on, but probably quite a few would be my guess. I, so actually I have a question for you now, uh, though maybe we should save yeah. it for our new year's, uh, uh extravaganza episode. Uh, <laughs> I have always been taught and I don't know where I was taught this. Uh, maybe I've always known, uh, that new year's day is celebrated that day because it is Jesus's bris his circumcision. Huh. I have never heard that. Interesting. Uh, it, it would make sense to me, but I have never heard that at all. Because um, it is the eighth a, day after Jesus's birth. Yeah. Uh, or or as is, it is the eighth day of his life. And that's how we count it because the day you're born is day one. I mean, I, I, that could be, that's just not part of, uh, what what we commonly talk about. For us, um, there's the birth of Jesus, and then the very next important event is on January 6th, which is the Feast of the Epiphany, which marks when the three magi came to 
to visit him. Interesting. In Bethlehem. So that's really interesting. I, I've, I've never heard that, but that doesn't mean it's not right. Uh, okay. Uh, maybe you can do some digging and find out. Sure, I'll try. I'd love to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I've known this since I was a little kid, so maybe it's little kid's knowledge. Um, I can imagine someone having done the math at 12 and uh, laughed about this too. So, you know, uh, yeah. that could be where it emerged. But it's thoroughly logical. I don't see why that wouldn't be true. So, yep. anyway, okay. I, by the way, uh, one last note as long as we're on this tangent. Uh, yeah. I referenced Jesus' bris or his Brit. Uh, that's the word for contract or covenant. Oh, cool. So the mark of the covenant is the bris. Yeah, technically we call a, um, the eighth day when a, a baby boy is uh, circumcised the brit milah, brit milah, which means the, the covenant of the circumcision. Uh, but wow. for short, we all just call it a bris. That is awesome. I love it. Okay, so uh, anyway, <laughs> we keep going on tangents. Yes, and we're uh, we don't have that much time left in this episode, so we should we should probably move uh, with some alacrity. Yes, I feel like our listeners by now are used to our tangents, though at least. So you know, there's that. that that's probably true. That's probably true. Uh, okay, and verse- listeners, I just want you to know it's all Daniel's fault. It just is all my so, fault. Okay, anyway, <laughs> verse twenty-one. Name the rabbi. We see how this goes. <laughs> Uh, I, I take it back. It's my fault. <laughs> uh, okay, verse 21. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. You shall observe this rite as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed down and worshipped. Right. It, it's quite the description here that we get of how uh-huh. you're supposed to keep this in the future for people who are, you know, hours away from worrying about being slaughtered. Yes, it is. It's really quite a long pause when they're in the midst of fleeing. <laughs> But, or when they're preparing to flee. Uh, do, so, bunch of hyssop dipped in blood. I have been to a Seder. I do not remember that. Is that part of... That, that part has not remained. That part has not remained. Okay. Hyssop, by the way, uh, is a variety of oregano. It's called za'atar in Hebrew. And uh, you huh. know you've got good hummus that you're buying at the store when it has za'atar on top. So little tips. All right. Little buying tip. I like it. Okay. So we got some, we got our Zatar. We've dipped it in blood. Uh, We've put it up on the, uh, on the lintels. Um, But this is not actually part of the, of the Passover. No, though we get a 
pedagogical moment here, right? In verse 26. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this right? right? We're already having a discussion about how you should teach this into the future. How this uh-huh. is here in the, that the Exodus writ large, and I think in some ways this is the theme of our podcast, that the Exodus story writ large is about how it impacts us today much more than it is about any events that happened. Right. Exactly. Hmm. So the children are always going to be asking, what is all this about? What is all of this about? And we always have to be prepared to explain. Right. We will need to answer that question regardless. Okay. Well, should we, should we go on? Verse 28. And you'll see here, uh, or you'll hear here, uh, we're leaving the priestly material now. Okay. Back to the narrative. And the Israelites went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. In the middle of the night, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh arose in the night. Uh, Interesting, because isn't Pharaoh a firstborn? Uh, Right, so it's a little surprising that he's not been struck down. So why would that be? I, Rashi seems to think it's so that uh, uh, he can show up at the Battle of the Reed Sea and uh, uh, bring more glory to God, which is sort of the, the classic answer that we find for most of these questions. Uh, but maybe the better answer is because it makes much better drama here. Yeah. As you're thinking that, it's like uh, the Terminator coming back to life or something <laughs> towards the end of the movie. Exactly. Exactly. Pharaoh dies and we don't get the Reed Sea parting. You know, come on, we're missing all the best parts. Right. Okay. Okay. So in our classic scene structure, this is uh, um, the turn at the end of Act 2 before entering the third act. Exactly. Uh, so Pharaoh rose in the night with all of his servants and all the Egyptians because there was a loud cry in Egypt for there was no house where there was not someone dead. Uh, hmm. the Midrash even says that, uh, in houses that didn't have a firstborn, whoever was the oldest counted as the firstborn and died. Wow. This is a moment that no family is spared from. Okay. So if you're, a a dad or no you're not a dad if you're a man without a child and you're the second son and you're married to a woman who is the second daughter you're still going to die even though you weren't the firstborn in your family exactly because in the house you are the first exactly every home is touched by this so in some ways this is an escalation of what happened with the hebrew children in the nile yes yes Okay. Uh, right, we're returning to the very beginning of the story in some ways. Yep. Okay. Uh, where did we start? 31. Okay. Uh, then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, he being Pharaoh, I take it, and said, rise up, go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you said. Take your flocks and your herds as you said, and be gone, and bring a blessing on me too. <laughs> So uh, I take it from that blessing that Pharaoh is now so thoroughly cowed by God, or at least we're supposed to to imagine yes. that, that Pharaoh, Pharaoh wants God's blessing because Pharaoh is afraid. And is feeling the uh, profound absence of blessing. Right. Okay. Okay. So we have a Pharaoh who 
seems at least at, in this little pause to have lost the sense of his own power and to be looking to the power of, of the God of the Hebrews. Yeah. Blessing here is not sort of a, um, individual event. It's not a noun. It's a status, right? I want God's blessing upon me again. Right. Right. Like blessing, you know, like the blessing that, that, uh, Jacob and Esau fought over. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Uh, the going on from verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure from the land for they said, we shall all be reasonable dead. fear. So the people, yeah. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The Israelites had done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And so they plundered the Egyptians. So uh, this is the plunder that you and I have been basically uh, previewing for weeks now. Uh, it's a big moment, this plundering of Egypt. Yes, the emptying out of Egypt. Uh, right? Is this reparations? Is this just? Is this truly borrowing or not? Uh, right? The rabbis struggle with this question. Um, and another thing that we didn't talk about when, when all the reiteration of unleavened bread was going on, which we probably should have, is just a, the, the notion that, um, leaven, you know, those little yeast particles that float in the air, wherever you are, uh, changes from place to place. Like they're slightly different yeast particles, little fungi, single cell fungi floating there in the air. And so if you leave one place, um, and you carry, say, like a sourdough starter with you, uh, you're you're still carrying part of that place with you. Uh. Um, so if you have unleavened bread, you're kind of rejecting that. You're saying there is no heritage of this place that's going with Wow. Us. I've never heard that before. Uh, that's awesome. I'm using that at Passover next year. <laughs> okay. Well, but then let me lead to the confusing thing about it, which is uh, so they they seem to to go to a lot of trouble not to carry uh, yeast with them, but then they take all this gold and silver. Yeah, well, you know, you can melt the gold down, make something new with it, you know. Um, okay, right, right. Leaven cannot be trans. Well, it can be transformed into bread, but yeah, I see what yeah, you're well, saying. Well, actually, you know, I'm sort of joking, but I think there's a truth to it too. Don't we always make excuses when it comes to wealth? Yeah, there is. Right, we, yeah. we always yeah. find a reason to justify why taking the gold is okay, even right. when we say taking yeast isn't. <laughs> right, the gold is okay. Yeast that is out of the yep. question. Yep. Well, just as long as we know where we yeah. stand. Yeah, it's it's actually it's one of the sort of sad parts sometimes about Passover is that it can be such a deeply ritualized time for Jews. That uh -huh. rather than the ritual leading us to the ethical questions it's supposed to, that it just becomes about the ritual. Right. Well, in the same way that Christmas just becomes about presents. Uh, yeah. Rather than leading one to kind of profound theological thoughts about the mystery of incarnation as it's really meant to do. Well, that's what the Jews did with Hanukkah in America. We really, we took all of the commercialized parts of Christmas and <laughs> added it into Hanukkah. 
Right, right. A celebration of a of a desperate last stand in the midst of a civil exactly. war. Exactly. Turns out, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, presents. You get some yeah, presents. Come on. Sure, the Maccabees died, but you know, Nintendo. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Gosh, that was my first Hanukkah present I remember is getting my Nintendo. Um, there we go. Okay, so so they have plundered the people. Uh, do you want to read from verse 37? Yes, from verse 37. Uh, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot aside from the children. Uh, so this is where we get our number from, right? 600,000 men. Right. We're probably talking a couple million human beings. Right, a ridiculous number. So obviously we're not dealing with history here. We are dealing with... Uh, Something other than exactly, history. exactly right. This is uh, about the size of Columbus, I guess. If everyone left Columbus and walked together, right, and uh, which it's hard to imagine anyone being able to do in the space of a single night. Yeah, yeah. So that's not only do you have quite yeah. an infrastructure project, <laughs> right, right. You have some logistical problems. Is all. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, moreover, a mixed multitude went up with them in very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had taken out of Egypt, for it was not leavened since they had been driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The length of time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years, uh, which by the way, you have to do some creative math to get to that number. Uh, uh-huh. At the end of the 430th year to the very day, all the ranks of the Lord departed from the land of Egypt. That was for the Lord a night of vigil to bring them out from the land of Egypt. That same night is the Lord's, one of vigil for all the children of Israel throughout the ages. So right again, we've returned to the, the, the pedagogical frame of teaching this to your children. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, this is the law of the Passover offering. So that phrase there again, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, that's, that should be a key for us. We're returning back into priestly content. This is the law of the Passover offering. No foreigner shall eat of it, but any slave a man has bought may eat of it once he has been circumcised. So, so there's a lot here about vigils. How are vigils kept in Judaism? What, what is their import to, uh, to tradition and ritual within Judaism? Uh, so let me see what word they're using here for ritual in Hebrew first. Uh, um, so this is a day of protection. It's a day of special. It's a day that must be kept uh, as apart from the other days. I think this is really another way of saying festival. Okay. Okay, so there's not a tradition in Judaism of like staying up all night and keeping watch over something. Uh, so actually, we do that for people who have died. Uh, that after a body oh, right. has died, uh, it's traditional that there be someone who sits with that body until it is buried, that it should never be left alone. And that's sitting Shiva? Is that no, the- Shiva is actually yeah. after the burial. It's when uh, the family sits in their right. home and all sorts of visitors come. No, this is uh, actually it's the same word. It's Shomer. We call it the, the protector. Uh, it's probably a reminder huh. of how we were a desert tribe. And in the desert, once someone ah. has died before they're buried, you have to protect the body or the animals will come. Interesting. Okay. So that's what's going on there. All right. But it's, it, that is not drawn from here. That's kind of pure practicality. Exactly. 
exactly that, that we're looking at there. Interesting. Okay. All right. So there is no real tradition of sitting vigil in, in Judaism. No, 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 not strongly. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that was my question. Let's finish this up. Uh, do you want to read or should I? I? I'll read because we've got some interesting boundary questions here. Uh, 43 for 45. Yeah. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, okay. this is the law of the Passover offering. Uh, which again, that's, that's a key to us that we're entering into priestly material here. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, that's, that's always the key. Uh, no uh -huh. foreigner shall eat of it. It's we're, we're creating a standard here that says that those who eat the Passover sacrifice are the Jews and those who don't are not. That we, we got something similar right. before when we were talking about leaven, uh, that, how do you become cut off from being a part of the people of Israel? You eat leaven during this festival. But then we're told, but any slave a man has bought may eat of it once he has been circumcised. No bound or hired laborer shall eat of it. So ignoring the question of slavery here, because it's a very different slavery than we think of in the United States, uh, much more something like indentured servitude. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. What we've got here is a description of Jewish identity, that there is clearly this ethnic component to it. And yet it is not entirely ethnic because a slave, right? Someone who has entered into the community, but is not originally from it. Once he's been circumcised, meaning once he has uh, joined in the covenantal markers is considered a part of Israel and a part of the Jewish people but a bound or hired laborer, right? The people who are coming to fix your house are not right. They, they may be a part of some broader sense of community, but we're getting boundary drawings here of a sense of who is a part and who is not a part. Again, I, I feel like there's always this tension between how do we set those boundaries, but still treat the other with dignity and love yeah. and respect. Right. And I feel like Judaism actually does this fairly well because of, you know, this whole system of setting aside a tenth of the field that we hear about later and other things. There's always a concern for the other. Um, so boundary drawing does not necessarily mean giving up any moral or ethical concern for those who are outside of the boundary. No, right. I mean, ideally, um, this is certainly the message of the prophets, right? particularism has to exist for the sake of universalism or what's the point. Mm. Uh -huh. um, but we know so often, right? Whether you're talking about Jewish communities or Christian communities or secular communities that the most noble of our ideals when we are powerless uh, often are ignored once we have power. Yeah. That's a sad statement, but yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. Um, huh. right. I mean, I, I, to me, that's the big question of being a Jew in the 21st century in a world where Jews once again, have some very real power, whether it's uh, sovereign power in Israel or sort of the, the privileged status that many Jews have in the United States of being an educated, uh, and welcomed minority. Uh, what are we going to do with that power now that we've got it? Are we going to take responsibility yeah. for it or not? Yeah. Well, I, uh, yeah, I have nothing to say ex except a agreement that that is always the struggle of being yeah. human. Yeah. So, 
and and mixed in with that this desire to belong and to create rituals of belonging um and that within those rituals there there is a dark side which is that uh you get to belong while others do mm. not mm. Hopefully they belong. To Hopefully they belong else. to something else. Hopefully there's another <laughs> church down the road that works for them. Right, right. So, uh, all the Israelites did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. That very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, company by company. Um, I think we should end with just a, a note on that company by company, which is military language, right? And um, just a little teaser. Going forward, we are going to enter into a period in this narrative where the chosen people are, are a war band. And where God is a warrior God. Exactly. So um, the the transformation from slave to freedom uh, is, is going to include some warfare. Yes. Yes. Uh, the big, the big anyway, drama is yet to come. For next week. Yes, it is. Uh, it has something to do with something. I seem to remember sure what, there was a movie like this. Yeah, uh, Mel Brooks. Was uh, what was it? Uh, Shawshank <laughs> Redemption? No. Oh. <laughs> anyway, all right. Uh, well, Daniel, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you for uh, for leading us through this. So, Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens, and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, you can find me online uh, at my website, prayerbookart.com. And Daniel, where do you want people to find you? This I have no around? plug this go around. Uh, go to the DSO website. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. It's very, very uh, self-sacrificing of you, really, to, to make it about us. What can I say? I'm one of the most humble people I know. It, it's like you belong to a community that has certain boundaries yeah. around it or yeah. require certain action. It's really quite amazing. Uh, okay. Well, thank you, dear listener. We yeah, will talk, talk to you soon. soon. Thanks, Carl. Bye.